I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. I would argue that never before in its 43-year history has the regime appeared more vulnerable because there's essentially five or six fires that are happening simultaneously inside Iran. Earlier this year, Karim Sajapur, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, argued in foreign affairs that Iran's exploits abroad were coming at great cost at home. He wrote, like a bodybuilder with failing organs, Iran displays external vigor that conceals ultimately incurable internal maladies. Fast forward to today. Protests have rocked Iran for nine weeks, yet it is backing Russia and Ukraine, wielding influence around the Middle East, and it appears unlikely to return to the nuclear deal. I talked to Karim about all of this and how Washington can forge a more effective response. Kareem, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dan. I want to start with what's happening on the streets in Iran today, the extraordinary wave of protests that have unfolded across the country for the past several weeks. These were, of course, sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman who was detained by the morality police for allegedly not wearing her hijab properly and then died in custody. But they've morphed into something that appears to be much broader with fairly expansive ambitions that really do appear to challenge the regime's legitimacy in some core ways and perhaps even its hold on power. You wrote a trenchant essay in foreign affairs earlier this year. It was called Iran's Hollow Victory, and it closes with this line. You wrote, ultimately, the Islamic Republic's grand strategy will be defeated not by the United States or Israel, but by the people of Iran who have paid the highest price for it. How likely is it that we're watching this play out today? Or to put a finer point on it, what's your sense of how great a threat to the regime the protests pose? Well, Dan, that's probably the most important question at this point. And one of the things I've been doing over the last five, six weeks is rereading some of the books about the 1979 revolution and other popular uprisings that succeeded, whether it was the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 or the Arab uprisings of 2011. And, you know, there's a famous quote about revolutions that, you know, about authoritarian regimes that while they rule, their collapse appears inconceivable. And after they've fallen, their collapse appeared inevitable. And I think that was long true about the Islamic Republic of Iran and that it was, I think, long viewed as a system which is not sustainable. But at the same time, it just seemed too repressive and powerful to be on the verge of collapse. And I would argue that never before in its 43-year history has the regime appeared more vulnerable because there's essentially five or six fires that are happening simultaneously inside Iran. Obviously, number one, you have women taking to the streets and removing their mandatory hijab, their mandatory headscarf. And that's important because the veiling of women is one of the three remaining pillars of the Islamic Republic, the other two being opposition to America and opposition to Israel. And so that is kind of a civil rights protest, which is difficult for the regime to extinguish because it's not like going out and beating with young men with batons. You know, you're having to tear gas schoolgirls, which, you know, is a terrible look for them. So you have women taking to the streets, removing their headscarves. Universities are on fire throughout the country. And the protests among university students have been very powerful very patriotic. One of the slogans that I saw a couple of weeks ago, which stayed with me, was university students saying, we're not going to leave Iran, we're going to take Iran back from you. And you know, this is, uh, Iran has suffered one of the highest rates of brain drain in the world the last 
several decades. And, and kind of this generation of university students is saying, we're going to be different than our predecessors. We're not going to flee the country. We're going to fight for it. So there's this you know, strong patriotic sense among these protesters. And then you have protests happening in ethnic enclaves, whether that's Iranian Kurdistan, Iranian Baluchistan, areas where people feel both disenfranchised because of the fact they're ethnic minorities, and in some cases also religious minorities, being Sunni Muslims rather than, than Shiite Muslims. So these things are all happening simultaneously, and we've also started to see kind of nascent strikes among petrochemical workers, laborers, the bazaar. If these four, five, six brush fires are able to merge together into one large sustained inferno, I think the regime is really going to be in trouble. But the final thing I'll say here is that, you know, when you look at successful movements that are brought down authoritarian regimes, there's usually two key ingredients. You obviously need popular pressure, but you also need divisions at the top, elite divisions. And so far in Iran, we've certainly seen ample popular pressure. In fact, I'd say the popular discontent inside Iran, I would say it's even stronger and has been more sustained than the popular discontent, which brought down many Arab governments in 2011. But what we haven't yet seen are palpable divisions within the regime's elite and within Iran's powerful security forces. Presumably, Ayatollah Khamenei will die at some point reasonably soon in the coming years. He's been ill and reportedly had to undergo surgery in, in September. Could that succession represent a threat to the regime? How is that likely to play out? That's a very important question, Dan, because what we saw in Egypt and Tunisia in 2011 was after those popular uprisings persisted for many weeks, at some point the militaries in both countries calculated that to preserve their own interests, they needed to cut loose the dictator. So the Tunisian military, they essentially cut loose their leader, Ben Ali. The Egyptian military cut loose Hosni Mubarak in order, as I said, to preserve their own power and interests. Up until now, inside the Islamic Republic of Iran, we've always seen the interests of the security forces, namely the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and that of the supreme leader being kind of inextricably intertwined. They believe their fates are intertwined. At some point, for the reasons you mentioned, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei is 83 years old. He's thought to be suffering from terminal cancer. So he's not on his deathbed, but he's also not perceived to be long for this world. At some point, the Revolutionary Guards, if the protests in Iran persist, may start to have the same calculations as the Tunisian and Egyptian militaries, meaning, do we really want to burn the country down and kill you know, thousands and imprison tens of thousands to preserve the rule of an 83-year-old guy who may not be around forever, who won't be around forever? So we haven't yet seen them forced to contemplate those kinds of decisions, but if the protests persist, and they've, they've been persisting for, I think, longer than people anticipated, we're now in the eighth or ninth week of these protests, they may start to have those calculations. What other options does the regime have? You know, it's it's taken steps, increasingly aggressive steps to quash the protests without success. I think there was news yesterday that the regime had sentenced a protester to death, yet the alternative to repression seems unappealing. You know, you have a line in your essay to the effect of to survive the Islamic Republic would have to adapt, but doing so could destroy it, the kind of reformer's dilemma. What options do you think the regime has to forestall the further growth of the protest movement without resorting to outright repression, or does it have no other options at this point? 
I think as long as Ayatollah Khamenei is at the helm, he has no other option but to really try to snuff out these protests using repression. There's another piece I've been working on, which I call the Khamenei Doctrine, and it's about the events which shaped his worldview. And I'd say there's three important events which shaped his worldview and his doctrine. The first was the collapse of the Shah, the monarchy, in 1979, Iran. And there was a moment in 1978, late 1978, when the protests against the Shah's government were mushrooming, and the Shah went on official state television and he apologized to protesters for past sins and transgressions. And he said to them, I've heard the voice of your revolution. And I, I found a speech years later from Khamenei in which he said the Shah thought by going on television and apologizing to us, he was actually going to pacify the crowds and pacify us revolutionaries. But on the contrary, that's when we saw how vulnerable he was. We smelled blood and we pounced. So the collapse of the Shah was very instructive in shaping the worldview of revolutionaries like Ayatollah Khamenei. Another event which was seminal in kind of informing Khamenei's worldview was the collapse of the Soviet Union, because he, like Vladimir Putin, very much believed that it was Gorbachev's attempts to reform the Soviet Union via perestroika and glasnost, which actually hastened the collapse of the Soviet Union. And by the way, this is an observation which some of the great political philosophers like Machiavelli and Tocqueville have also made, that the most dangerous moment for any bad government is when it tries to reform itself. And then finally, the Arab Spring of 2011, I think simply reinforced Khamenei's existing doctrine that when Mubarak and Ben Ali tried to promise reform, you know, a few weeks later they were gone. Well, who didn't promise reform? Bashar al-Assad, the ruler of Syria. And yes, he may have destroyed his country, but 10 years later he's still in power. And so I think Khamenei's worldview is that when you're under threat, when you know your population is rising up, never cede an inch because that's not going to pacify protesters, it's actually going to embolden them. And so I think as long as Ayatollah Khamenei remains supreme leader, it's almost going to be an all or nothing proposition. Either the Islamic Republic rules or it doesn't. But I see very little chance of modus vivendi being reached between Ayatollah Khamenei and Iran's population at the moment. I want to ask one more question about the protests before we zoom out a bit and look at the region and some of the broader geopolitical and security dynamics. You mentioned that the hijab is one of the three pillars, as you see it, of the Islamic Republic. Why is it so central? Why is the headscarf such a core part of its legitimacy or the kind of story about legitimacy that the regime tells? Since 1979, hijab has really been one of the flags of the Islamic Republic, kind of the outward symbol of theocracy. And both the father of the Islamic Revolution of 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini, and Ayatollah Khamenei were big fans of the Egyptian Islamists, kind of the grandfather of political Islam, some would say, Sayyid Qutb. And when you look at Qutb's writings, he was very much obsessed with this idea that female emancipation and gender equality would lead to the destruction of civilization. Those are his words. He actually believed that. And, and I think for the leaders of the Islamic Republic, if you look at their own language, both Ayatollahs Khomeini and Khamenei, believe that in some ways female beauty it destabilizes society because you know men can't think properly if they're you know staring at women's hair and they're triggered by that so on a very kind of base level they believe that in order to keep society and civilization intact the hijab is necessary so there's you know kind of that religious reason for it they would argue 
But I go back to what I was saying earlier about Khamenei's view that reforming the system will lead to its collapse. And, you know, in our language, we refer to Iran's ruling elite as hardliners. But in their own language, they refer to themselves as principalists. And what that means is that they are loyal to the principles of the revolution because they believe that if you abandon your principles, that doesn't actually prolong your shelf life. That's like taking a sledgehammer to the pillars of a building. And for them, mandatory hijab is one of the pillars of the Islamic Republic. And if you abandon that pillar, it's not that it's going to pacify the dissenters in Iran. It's going to be a gateway freedom for people. And so next thing you know, they'll want to drink alcohol. They'll want to go out with their boyfriends or girlfriends and listen to Western music. And the whole ball of yarn will unravel if we give up on that. And so for that reason, I think as long as Ayatollah Khamenei is in power, from the outside, we'd think, well, that's pretty silly. Why not just allow women to dress freely? But in his view, if they give up that pillar, it could hasten the collapse of the system. And a good friend of mine, Masi Alinejad, the Iranian-American women's rights activist who's based in Brooklyn, she several years ago analogized mandatory hijab to the Berlin Wall. And she said, you know, just as you know, after the Berlin Wall collapsed, so did the authoritarian regimes which it represented. The mandatory hijab, you take that away, the Islamic Republic won't really survive thereafter. And I think that for Ayatollah Khamenei, he also believes that as well. I should say we published a powerful piece by Masih Alinejad last month or a few weeks ago, which, is, which is worth reading. Yes. To return to your essay, you know, you got at this core paradox in Iranian strategy in that piece. It has succeeded in winning influence in the region, especially by exploiting weakness elsewhere, but that's come at a cost to its success at home. You, know, you have this great line, like a bodybuilder with failing organs, Iran displays external vigor that conceals ultimately incurable internal maladies. So the protests are a uh, manifestation of those internal maladies, but let's talk about that external vigor. You know, It does look like Iran has had a pretty good couple of decades in terms of its own regional influence. That starts, of course, with the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which took out perhaps its main adversary, at least on its borders, and gave it enormous control over outcomes in Baghdad. But you also have Iranian influence in Lebanon and Syria, Yemen. You noted that Iranians call their axis of resistance. What in brief is Iran's strategy? You know, Has it been particularly adept or is this really just opportunistic exploitation of mistakes by others and weakness elsewhere? Well, I think it's fair to say it's been both, Dan. It's been both obviously opportunistic, but it's been adept, more adept than any other nation state in the region in filling regional power vacuums. So, you know, we created a huge vacuum in 2003 when we took Saddam Hussein out. And then the Arab uprisings of 2011 also created power vacuums. And as you said, the countries where Iran thrives, it's either failed or failing states. In the region, it's Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and Yemen. Outside the Middle East, it also has significant influence in Venezuela. I've had Venezuelan friends tell me that the Maduro government probably would have fallen long ago had it not been for Iran's financial and military support. And the way Iran has been adept at filling these regional power vacuums is essentially following the Hezbollah model. I call it the McDonaldization of Hezbollah. It's kind of, you know, you created, they created a franchise in Lebanon four decades ago, and they've been expanding that franchise. And these places where the militaries and the states have, have come apart, a powerful externally funded militia, funded obviously by Iran, has filled that military vacuum. You know, one thing I talk about with a lot of my friends, and I just returned from a trip in the region, is that 
I spent a, a year in Lebanon and Beirut at the American University of Beirut in the early 2000s as a Fulbright scholar. And one of the things that I learned in that year is that, you know, it can take decades or, or centuries to build a place and weeks to destroy it. So in some ways, you could argue one of the advantages that Iran has over its regional rivals and the United States is that Iran really isn't trying to build, rebuild states. It's just trying to benefit from destroyed states. And in some ways, for example, you know, after the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, Iran simply wanted to sabotage America's ability to build a functioning state. The other thing that I've seen is that one of the major advantages that Iran has over some of its regional rivals, in particular a country like Saudi Arabia, is that virtually all Shiite radicals in the Middle East and beyond the Middle East, let's say from India to Lebanon, are willing to go out and fight and kill, if not die, for the Islamic Republic of Iran. Whereas virtually all Sunni radicals, groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, want to overthrow the Sunni governments of the region, like Saudi Arabia. So that's an asymmetric advantage Iran has, that it's the only government in the region which has consistently been able to harness Islamist radicalism in its favor, whereas, as I said, Sunni governments are not capable of that because the Sunni radicals really you know, oppose those existing Sunni nation-states. It does seem that the Abraham Accords may represent a new strategic reality for Iran, a strategic challenge for Iran. You know, it's shifting the balance of power and creating this you know, new alignment between Israel and the Gulf Arab states, which is largely, the logic of that is really about opposing Iran. Does this represent a challenge to Iran? Is this changing the equation in a meaningful way? Well, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, the common fears of Iran have midwifed these alliances which a decade or two ago seemed unthinkable that you know Israel would normalize with important Arab states and there's probably more Arab states on the way. The question is to what extent have the Abraham Accords and Israeli-Arab normalization countered Iranian influence and in the states we've talked about, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen, So far, I don't think that there are strong examples of that. But I think on a broader level, what is happening is that within those countries that we've talked about, even within Shia communities in Iraq and and Lebanon, you're starting to see a backlash against Iran and its proxies. Because those states that Iran calls them, this alliance, they're axis of resistance. But I think in the foreign affairs piece, I also refer to them as an axis of misery. You know, these are places which are under terrible living conditions for all of their inhabitants. And I think there's an increasing resentment against Iran and the violence and corruption of its regional proxies. And I think those trends will continue. And, you know, oftentimes what is needed is a spark. And we're now seeing, you know, in Iran, there's been popular discontent for decades, social, political, and economic. The country has long been a powder keg. And the killing of Masa Amini was the match which just lit off these most recent protests. And I think the situations in in Lebanon and Iraq and Syria, you know, there has been large-scale uprisings, but they're also in some ways in search of that match that could spark a movement against Iran and its regional proxies. Another striking example of Iran wielding its influence in the last few weeks has been its support for Russia's war in Ukraine. 
Has that support surprised you? Do you think it's going to be consequential? And do you expect that Iran will continue providing support? Is this an alignment that will persist? That support hasn't surprised me because one of the sentences I remember I wrote in that foreign affairs piece was how no government in the world over the last four decades has had a more clear and consistent grand strategy to try to upend the U.S.-led world order than the Islamic Republic of Iran. And Iran has essentially been willing to partner with anyone who shares that goal of uh, defeating the U.S.-led world order, whether that's Hezbollah or Maduro's Venezuela or North Korea or Putin's Russia. And so for them, their worldview is very binary, and they view Putin, Putin's Russia as an ally against the United States. And it also has been an opportunity for them to showcase their military wherewithal. My view is that the relationship between Iran and Russia is not a natural alliance between two nation states. It's really a marriage of convenience by two embattled dictatorships. So if Tehran's relation with Moscow is opportunistic and does not reflect kind of underlying interests that are likely to persist over the long term, what about its relationship with Beijing? How does that factor into both the regional dynamics and these broader geopolitical considerations? So at the moment, China is Iran's indispensable strategic partner. And for Iran, it's a strategic partnership. The vast bulk of Iran's energy is going towards China. You could argue that for Beijing, the relationship is obviously much less important. It's more of a tactical, more of a transactional relationship for China. When you talk to Chinese officials, they'll say, it's not that you know Islamic Republic of Iran is an incredibly important strategic partner. We, in fact, China imports more energy from Saudi Arabia and the UAE than it does Iran. But, you know, it's a transactional relationship. And I think here is where we sometimes err in lumping China and Russia together and their interests vis-a-vis Iran. And that, you know, I think that Russia and Iran actually have very competing interests. And Russia doesn't benefit from an Iran which normalizes relations with the United States and emerges from isolation because an Iran which starts to follow its national interests and emerges from isolation will start to compete with Russia in global oil and gas markets. You know, that kind of Iran may start to assert its own historic interests in Central Asia and start to compete with Russia. You know, Russia likes having Iran as a thorn in the side of the United States. And I don't think any of that is true about the China-Iran relationship and that You know, in 1978, before the protests against the Shah began, Iran was producing about 6 million barrels per day of oil. That number is down to about 2.5 million barrels per day now. But in Iran, which is really exploiting its vast reserves of oil and natural gas, that, that would be good for China. You know, China wants for there to be more energy in the world and to increase supply in order to bring down prices. And Iran, which has emerged from isolation, is no longer subject to the type of owner sanctions it is right now, would be an even larger marketplace for Chinese products. And China doesn't benefit from instability in the Middle East, which disrupts the free flow of oil. Russia and Iran certainly benefit from that. So I think despite the fact that Russia and China oftentimes vote together on Iran issues at the UN and are perceived to be aligned, I think their interests vis-a-vis Iran are totally divergent. And China would really benefit from an Iran whose organizing principle is the country's national interests rather than revolutionary ideology. We'll be back after a short break. The U.S. midterms beg the question, what's driving the far right turn around the world? Gender, not class. From Bristol University Press comes Wronged and Dangerous, 
viral masculinity, and the populist pandemic. Professor Karen Ashcraft, a former right-wing populist herself, shows how the surge in global populism is coming from manly grievance gone viral. Aggrieved manhood is a conviction that straight, white, Western manhood is under attack. It's a contagious feeling that roams worldwide under populist cover. He the people, disguised as we the people. Wronged and dangerous transcends political divides. It reframes aggrieved manhood as a public health problem. Viral, not toxic, masculinity. Ashcraft demonstrates how right-wing populism is spreading rather than disputing what it says. Sobering yet spirited, her original analysis gives a glimpse of a brighter future. The American debate on policy towards Iran for the last decade or so has really been dominated by the nuclear negotiations. And you've had, of course, the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, which was passed in 2015 and scrapped by Trump. And Biden has you know, talked about making it a priority to get back in, but those negotiations do not seem to have really gone anywhere. What's your sense of where those negotiations stand? And is there any chance at this point that we'll get back to JCPOA or do you see it as more or less dead? I wouldn't say the deal is totally dead, but it's certainly in a very deep coma. And it's not only because of the fact that it would be very difficult for the U.S. government to, at the moment, strike a deal with an Iranian regime, which is repressing people en masse in order to stay in power. It would be very difficult for the Biden administration to all of a sudden you know, lift sanctions, which would give an embattled Iranian regime tens of billions of dollars in cash relief. But it would also be perceived as essentially subsidizing Iran's support for Vladimir Putin against Ukraine. And so I think for that reason, I would say it's now a consensus view, both in the United States and Europe, that the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, should not be the priority at the moment. Now, if we fast forward six months from now, and the protests in Iran have been totally quelled, I think that officials in the Biden administration and in Europe will start to rethink things and think, well, containing Iran's nuclear ambitions remains a, a critically important priority. And whether we like it or not, there's no military solution to this problem. And so we'll have to re-enter diplomatic negotiations with Iran. My view is that there should be three pillars of any U.S. strategy toward Iran. One, obviously, you do have to contain their nuclear ambitions. The second, we, we have to contain and counter their regional ambitions. But I think there is a third pillar, which we've neglected for many years, and that is supporting the cause of domestic change in Iran. And that, to quote former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Mike McFaul, he said that the Cold War wasn't ended by American diplomats or arms controllers. It was ended by Russian dissidents and, and democracy activists within the Soviet Union. And I think likewise, the Islamic Republic of Iran's identity has been premised on hostility towards the United States for 43 years. So as long as this system is in place in Iran, I think the U.S.-Iran Cold War is going to persist and we're going to continue to respond to the symptoms of that challenge. When it comes to containing the nuclear program, is JCPOA still the best option or is there some other approach that would achieve those arms control ends? Well, from the outset, the Biden administration's articulated goal was not simply a return to status quo ante to revive the JCPOA, but their goal was to quote Secretary Blinken, a longer and stronger deal. 
And I think this is, you know, frankly, a, the European view as well, that because of the fact that so many of these sunset clauses, which were part of the JCPOA, will be expiring in the coming few years, that the JCPOA unto itself is not a long-term solution. You know, it's a temporary band-aid. I'm struck by the narrowing of this policy debate. You know, 10 years ago, you had advocates of Rapprochement and some of the champions of the JCPOA arguing that we really could transform our relationship with Iran in a way that would shift dynamics in the region. You also had people arguing that the alternative to the nuclear deal was a war with Iran, or at least a major military strike. It seems like there's just a much narrower range of policy options on the table now. And what's your sense of what we actually can do? We have lots of sanctions in place. There is an interest in reducing the U.S. role in the Middle East, not enhancing it. So it just seems like the set of policy tools that we have at play in this moment when focuses on Ukraine and on China and lots of other challenges is fairly limited. It is. And I think one thing which I find interesting is that despite the fact the Islamic Republic of Iran has now been in power 43 years, it's only been, I'd say, somewhat recently that there has emerged kind of a broad consensus about the nature of this system in Iran. And that's partly due to the fact that you know, we haven't had an embassy in Tehran since 1979. And the dichotomous nature of the Iranian regime has long been that Iran's most powerful officials are inaccessible and its most accessible officials are not powerful. And so that has, I think, helped to confound the American understanding of the Islamic Republic of Iran. I think there has now emerged a broad consensus that, okay, this regime is not really capable of reforming its politics or its ideology, its hostility towards the United States. The Obama administration made multiple attempts to try to improve the relationship with Iran. President Obama wrote multiple letters. Secretary of State Kerry made enormous efforts to try to build ties. We now have the Biden administration and the Biden administration's special envoy to Iran, Rob Malley, has been one of the most senior U.S. officials who's been most outspokenly supportive of a better relationship with Iran. And Iran has not even agreed to meet with him during nuclear negotiations. So I think there has emerged a general consensus that this is a regime whose politics and its anti-American ideology are not likely to reform. So that kind of throws out the China analogy, because for many years, people advocated a bold U.S. approach like a Nixon to China. But you know, that takes two. And the Chinese had made a calculation in the 1970s that the mutual fear of the Soviet Union necessitated a U.S.-China rapprochement. And Ayatollah Khamenei's calculations are totally different. He believes that actually rapprochement with the United States would not prolong the life of the Islamic Republic, it would actually hasten its demise. I think at the same time, there was another analogy which was used for many years, especially by Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, which was to liken Iran to Nazi Germany. And Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is Iran's former president. Ahmadinejad is Iran's Hitler, who could only be defeated with force and, you know, suicidal. And I think that that analogy has also been debunked because people see that this regime in Iran is certainly homicidal, but it hasn't acted suicidal. You know, it wants to stay in power. And so I think for that reason, by default, the analogy with the Soviet Union is the best fit. I don't want to aggrandize Iran to the level of global superpower. It's not. It's a regional power. But the basic lesson is that for the United States, you cannot force a rapprochement with a regime which needs you as an adversary for its own internal legitimacy. And we have, you know, in the past contained regimes like Iran, 
and encounter them when necessary. And we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. So we can have arms control deal, just as we did arms control deals with the Soviet Union. And at the same time that President Reagan was doing that, he was denouncing the Soviet Union as an evil empire and imploring Gorbachev to tear down the wall. We should be able to do that in the Iranian context. I don't think so far we've done a good job of doing that. But I, I do think there's a growing recognition within the Biden administration that that is the kind of Iran strategy that we need. I want to close this conversation by getting at the third pillar that you mentioned, the need to support domestic change in Iran. You know, this, I think, is a uh, fallen out of fashion in U.S. policy debates, in part because of our lack of success in trying this in other contexts. What more should we be doing to that? And what more can U.S. policy really do to influence the course of events on the ground? It's an important question, Dan. And I think you rightly touched on the fact that over the last two decades in the Middle East, whether it's the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, or the failed Arab uprisings, we have a collective lack of confidence in the United States about our ability to foster democratic change or representative government in the Middle East. But I think looking at what the events in Iran through the prism of the Iraq war, or Afghanistan war, or even the Arab uprisings is probably not the right prism. In my view, when I look at events in Iran, I'm actually more reminded of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, or frankly, our civil rights movement in the United States, in that there just seems to be this inexorable desire for basic civil rights, which is not going to be extinguished because it's just so clear to people that they're on the right side of history and the regime is on the wrong side of history. And yes, the regime is highly armed and organized and very adept at repression. And repression may temporarily snuff out the desires of society for change, but it's not going to be able to permanently do that. And, you know, just as the United States, I think, played an effective role in supporting anti-apartheid activists in South Africa, you know, there was an incredibly powerful speech from then-Senator Joe Biden, who in 1986 was imploring Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, George Shultz, saying that America's loyalty is not to South Africa, it's to South Africans. And one of the things which I think President Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, learned from the 2009 uprisings in Iran is whether America does zero out of 10 to support protests in Iran or whether it does 10 out of 10, the regime is going to continue to label Iran's protesters as American and Israeli lackeys. So, you know, broadly speaking, one of the most important ways we can try to help the cause of political change in Iran is to simply inhibit the Iranian regime's ability to control communication and control information. So one of the things that regime has done effectively is to censor the internet and at times throttle the internet to prevent people from communicating with one another in the outside world so they can repress people in the dark. So that's a very important role America and American Western tech companies can play in inhibiting that, whether that's you know, Elon Musk, Starlink, or other companies like Google, which are providing VPNs. But I also just think we can do a much better job of thinking creatively about our ability to have a positive impact inside of Iran. And I feel oftentimes in the US, we kind of talk ourselves out of trying to support change and change movements because we say, well, you know, we've screwed up so many times. We screwed up in Iraq and Afghanistan, or, you know, we weren't able to properly help in the context of the Arab uprisings. 
But you know, the reality is that, in my view, this is the most promising civil rights movement to take place in the Middle East in decades. The transformation of Iran from being a country whose organizing principle is opposition to the United States to being a country whose organizing principle is its own national interests would, in my view, be one of the most geopolitically impactful political implosions since the 1991 collapse of the Soviet Union, whose impact would be felt globally. It would be felt from Venezuela to North Korea to Ukraine and most profoundly in the Middle East. And so I think you know, we, the United States, have a profound interest in trying to help Iranians. You know, there's a quote from Henry Kissinger in which he said, there are few nations in the world with whom the United States has more common interests and less reason to quarrel than Iran. And so in my view is that a transformation of Iran from a country which prioritizes revolutionary ideology to a country which prioritizes its own national interests would be a game changer for the United States, a geopolitical game changer for the United States. And, you know, I think we could be thinking much more creatively about ways to, at a minimum, if it's not helping the cause of protests in Iran, inhibiting the Iranian regime's ability to repress its people and keep them in the dark. I was fascinated to see that you had personally spoken with Elon Musk to make the case for making uh, Starlink available to Iranians. Was that a, a difficult case to make? What I found in speaking with prominent tech entrepreneurs over the years is that a lot of them spent their formative years reading science fiction and watching movies like Star Wars. And so when they look at events in Iran, there does seem in the eyes of many people, to be a pretty clear battle between, you know, the forces of good and the forces of evil. You know, a modern young society has a very simple demand, which is to live a normal life and live in freedom, and a regime which is trying to repress that. And so I think virtually every tech CEO that I've spoken to would like to play a constructive role in trying to help people in Iran live in a more free society. It's sometimes been complicated by, you know, existing U.S. sanctions against Iran and the fact that, you know, there's a fear of supporting people in a way which would taint their independence and perhaps give the regime even more license for repression. But I think there's now a broad sense that people in Iran actually want to see outside support. And, you know, my experience talking to Elon Musk, he's very sympathetic to the cause of protests in Iran. So you pitched it to him as uh, this is a chance to support the rebels against the empire in Star Wars, essentially. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm never going to give them any lessons about Star Wars and science fiction. They know much better than I do. But I, I do think that it's not often in global affairs in which we view an issue through such a binary lens. So I think this is a pretty easy sell to try to get people to want to help. But obviously, the devil is in the details. And, you know, how, what is the most constructive way for outside forces, whether that's the United States or Europe or Western governments and companies to help? Kareem, thanks so much for joining us today and for your contributions to foreign affairs. We'll hope to have you back in the magazine soon. Thank you, Dan. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. 
The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.